I'm Betsy Reed, and this is The Discomfort Practice, where I talk to creatives, activists, leaders, scientists, and a host of others about discomfort, about the role it's played in their lives, who they are and what they do in the world, and the value of discomfort in helping us move forward as a society. Discomfort is just the edge of your comfort zone, and on the other side are superpowers. So settle yourself in, and let's get uncomfortable. Well, as I say at the beginning of basically every episode of The Discomfort Practice, I'm super excited about my next guest because I only interview people I'm super excited about talking to. So I have followed Matisse Dupont for over a year on social media, TikTok and Instagram, and I'm just so absolutely thrilled that they agreed to be here today. So hello, Matisse. Hello. How's it going, Betsy? Oh, I am so good now that I'm looking at you on screen and talking to you. So I'm just going to go ahead and launch into your very impressive biography. So Matisse, they, she, is an artist, educator, and consultant with expertise and scholarship in the areas of gender, sexuality, and identity. A voraciously curious and creative person, they hope to engender playful artistry and shared knowledge into every person and project they encounter. And I can tell you from watching them, they do that very well. Based in Boston, Massachusetts. I know, I love it. I see, I just can't help it. I'm such a fan. All right, so Matisse is based in Boston, Massachusetts and holds a master's in gender and cultural studies from Simmons University. They offer individual and institutional gender consultation services and inclusivity consulting and cultural competency training concerning transgender, non-binary, gender non-conforming individuals, and the LGBTQIA community. Beyond this, they're a multidisciplinary artist who flits between inky abstract paintings, makeup, chainmail jewelry. I think you called chainmail jewelry something like, what was it? Goth, goth crocheting? Weaving for goths, or knitting for goths. <laughs> knitting for goths, which I was like, huh? that is the perfect description of making chainmail but most recently directed and produced a Shakespeare production of A Midsummer Night's Dream. So dabbles in a lot of things, creative in a lot of areas, and very productive in everything they do. So as I said, I came across Matisse about a year ago on TikTok and just fell in love with A, their style and their personality and the things that I continually learn from them as a scholar and an educator on gender. And Matisse, I'll directly address this to you, but your style and your energy and the way that you welcome people into a conversation, even when you're just making videos for social media, is really, really talented, really unique, and really what people need on a platform that can so often just make people feel really bad about themselves. So we're having this conversation today. Oh, well, I appreciate you. But we're having this conversation today because change is uncomfortable, but to evolve and create space for everyone as a society, which is something I am increasingly irate and passionate about, we need to evolve our understanding of things like gender. And it's really easy if you are cisgender, for example, if you identify as the gender you were assigned at birth, to just kind of ignore this. Ignore that asking things like people's pronouns is really not that much trouble at all, but it makes people feel seen. It makes people feel like there's space for them. And when there isn't that recognition or those right pronouns or a recognition of them, people feel they don't belong. And if we're going to move forward as a society, if we're going to create a place where everyone feels like they can tap into their greatest power and help us power forward on issues like climate change or social inequality or be their most creative, amazing artistic selves, we need to make sure they feel like they belong. So 
even if this is a mystery to you, even if this conversation is new to you and this makes you really uncomfortable or even triggered, stick with us because there's going to be some beautiful stuff in this conversation. And these are the kinds of things that we need to be talking about as a normal conversation among just everyone, my mom, your mom. So let's have this conversation, Matisse, and model how we do this in a really lighthearted way in some ways, but also getting down to some really meaty topics that are super important in order to help everyone feel that they can thrive on this planet of ours. So welcome. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm really excited to talk about because gender is very itchy for a lot of people. It's like that particular sort of discomfort. And I'm excited to talk through you know, some, some of my methodologies and my own personal experience when it comes to this often needlessly uncomfortable topic. I'm interested. I mean, we'll get to why is that an itchy topic for so many people? Why is it uncomfortable and why is it needlessly uncomfortable? We'll talk about that in a moment. But first, can't leap ahead. I always have to cover off my first question, which is what is an uncomfortable moment that has shaped who you are and what you do in the world? Yeah. I was thinking about which example I was going to use. I think I I have the one I'm going to I'm going to tell the story of. So when I was fresh out of undergraduate, I studied linguistics and psychology. I spent a couple of years teaching English as a foreign language to international students, just sort of in my city, out of one of those sort of for-profit education centers where it was a lot of very rich, often conservative international folks coming in to like they're with cultures colliding. And it was just <laughs> a really interesting space to be in. And so I was placed uh, a couple years into the, like the proficiency level course, which is essentially the people who are basically fluent in the language. And so, you know, with the lower courses having these cultural conversations, it was, you know, pretty easy to skirt around things because they just didn't have the words for it. But these people, their full selves were there, you know, because they were fully fluent and just sort of practicing, right? And so one of the students was a really like progressive young woman, I believe, if I remember correctly, from Venezuela, who really wanted to talk about gender. We kind of asked them, what topics do you want to cover? And we would float between them because I was really important for them to like have things that they wanted to talk about. And she wanted to talk about gender, gender equality, feminism. And I was like, let's go. This is at the time was running a group called FemShare, which is like a place to come talk about our relationship to like gender and feminism with my friends. And I was like, I got this. Let's do this. Uh, and here's where the discomfort comes in. So there were a lot of these kids in the class who were coming from very conservative, like French families or people from Saudi Arabia. And some of them were men also were not ready to talk about gender. They were very defensive. And an uncomfortable moment happened on the very first day. I had this long list of questions that were like, helping them see gender a little bit. And I basically like I tend to be very neutral as a teacher or I was like kind of closeted as non-binary. I had been identifying as non-binary and like was able to be that in certain spaces, but not at work. And I feel like my devil on my shoulder, nefarious side of me came out and was like, <laughs> I don't know why I said it, but like, I want to make you boys uncomfortable today. You're going to have to be uncomfortable while we're talking about this. And they all got up immediately. They left the room Whoa. and they went and like reported me to my director who then I had to have this whole talk. And it was just like one of those moments where was like, crap, this is not the way to get through to people. And also now I've got all these students who will like not trust me going forward at all on anything. 
And I like slipped up for this one moment and I just really shaped my experience on how to be an educator and how to actually teach people things. Um, and it was really hard as like a young person who was still not confident myself, seeing how the world was not ready for, for me in a lot of ways. Mm. And yeah, but it really shaped my perspective as an educator because I just, I felt so embarrassed, but also really vindicated at the same time. And I felt embarrassed for feeling vindicated. So that's, I think, one of those moments that was uncomfortable, but definitely shaped me. Wow, a whole melange of emotions going on there. Okay, I love how that just so gives a paint a picture of how you are as an educator, because I was saying this before we hit record, which is I just want to tell you about my personal stuff without any filter. And I'm like, we barely know each other, but I just feel safe around you. And it's interesting to know and to hear. And that's probably useful for other people to hear that this is definitely a natural trait, but it's something that you've also probably cultivated because you've not always done that. So thank you. That's a really beautiful insight into you. Yeah, I, I think so much more. There's so many more things that are like slowly, subtly developed skills that people don't even think of as skills. And then we're like, oh, yeah, just a thing I can do. And I think a lot more is a habit that you've sort of unconsciously created. And I think there's a lot more skill that people don't know they have. And I think that was definitely a skill I had to learn, you know? Mm. Well, it's like the skill of presenting or speaking. People think because they can talk, they can speak. But that is not the case at all. As someone who teaches students to speak in public and present, it's really, it is a skill. And the more natural and easy something looks, usually the more someone's practiced it. So the point of this conversation today is really about how do we all create more space for each other in the world, but particularly for those who are grappling with gender and for people who might not have ever had a conversation like this. They might not know what non-binary means. So I'm going to start by just modeling something that I think should be just the norm for us. I'm learning to use they, but I want to respect whatever people's pronouns are. So what are your pronouns, Matisse, and why? What was your journey to those pronouns? So yeah, let's just, the first thing. Hi, yeah, my name is Matisse Dupont. I use they or she pronouns. How about you, Betsy? What are, what are your pronouns? My name is Betsy, and I use she and her. See, that was easy. That was so easy. There we go. Whenever I'm thinking about pronouns, my linguist side comes out. I'm like, they're literally just a shortened version of a name. And of course, they carry a lot of gendered weight. But really, it's just your name. Like, I think a really simple way to think of it. It's just a mini version of your name, almost like a nickname. What's the most comfortable for you? But of course, they carry a lot of weight. There's got some baggage. But, you know he or she or they, none of them have inherent meaning. They're, you know, they're just weird. their mouth, their little mouth sounds that we've assigned meaning to. But so, yeah, the second question, how did I get here? It's been sort of a, you know, winding path. And I think uh, I, I want to remind people, it's like lovely and beautiful if your relationship to these change over time, because mm. it, it doesn't need to be stable. So for me, you know, growing up, I was, you know, assigned to the gender category of having to be a little boy, you know, and you know, was able to sort of find ways to incorporate other ways of like wanting to be things. I feel like I was able to sort of live in that like fabulous, fierce gay boy world when I was a teenager. <laughs> but then when I was um, in college, I just was spending a lot of time online and my university was an incredibly queer space. Everyone was, was a feminist and was very queer in all the circles I was running in. And you know, they then was just starting to pop up. And I was like, oh, I, I like that a lot. But it was so new. And I, so I started using he, they, you know, just sort of like dabbling. And then I moved to 
uh, a newer city and where I am in Boston. And it was far more conservative, which is hilarious because Boston's not conservative. In the, in the, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> comparatively speaking, it was very conservative. So I basically, except for in like select spaces, went back to the key, right? Just like all the time, especially at work. And then eventually slowly started incorporating the they back in because I was like, at the time I was using the word agender because it felt like an, a way to describe how I was feeling where I was like, yeah, this is where I am, but I really don't feel like this fits. So I think the lack of gender feels like a better way to describe that. And then slowly was like getting really tired of people never using they. And then I was like, okay, well, it's they, he then like you, I'm going to put this first and foremost. And then eventually no one was doing that. And I was like, okay, then it's just they, them. Oh, <laughs> you have to use they, them for me. Totally uh, by example, really. You're like I A little bit. Yeah. And then that was lovely. But the thing is, is still no one was using it because I was still very much presenting as in my mind felt very feminine, but the rest of the world was not getting the memo. So I ended up sort of, you know, transitioning. I was already transitioning to a certain extent, but I kind of went full force into like I overshot into femininity because it was just what I needed to do in order to make sure people were not no longer seeing me as a boy, I mean, I, I always say I never got to manhood. I was way too young. <laughs> but yeah, then suddenly everyone was just calling me she as a default. because, mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, fine. They she it is because I don't want to feel like I'm being misgendered when everyone's calling me she and I'm not uncomfortable. I like she. And then I went to grad school and I was like, this is I'm studying gender. I can be whoever I want to be. We're going to go back to just they them, even though I like am presenting as like a woman to societal standards. Right. And then, you know actually really just this summer being like a public educator being in a lot of places i took she back on especially because last summer i was like once again full femme i recently shaved my head and i'm feeling way more you know in my comfort non-binary space a lot because i love shaved headed women that's like i've shaved my head a couple of times and it is super powerful but also super scary men act really crazy around shaved headed women sometimes i will share that at some point and so yeah i'm kind of back at they she because i want to leave space for like the world who can't get they them to still engage my primary pronoun is absolutely they them but she is like an option because i love it i love femininity i love women i love womanhood and i love that i get to have one foot in there right just because <laughs> the way people operate around me and so yeah it's part of my positionality and i'm like okay let's roll with it here i am i love that so that's my, i know that was a little long and convoluted and i know most people's aren't quite so windy and twisty but that's that what about well, Betsy? Do you have any sort of pronoun journey? Oh, I definitely do. But I also wanted to know, you crammed a winding and very complex journey into four minutes. So congratulations. That is pretty damn good. But cool. yeah, I, I actually have had a long and winding journey and I've really been grappling with past few months. Should I just go with they and them to serve as an example? But actually what I came to was, no, I have come to a place because of my own journey of being really in love with the she, uh, you know, in love with my femininity and identifying as a cis female and enjoying it. And I, I don't want to lose that part of me because I want that part of me to be seen because I've spent such a long time, we would say in the sort of shadow side Jungian kind of work that we're familiar with that other people listening might be familiar with, where you look at the masculine, the feminine archetypes and you explore those sides of yourself because we all have them within us, which is a really key thing to, to keep in mind. But I was raised in a very religious Christian fundamentalist family between two brothers and by a very sporty family as well. My dad's a coach. And so my way to sort of 
achieve and belong and get approval was to be quite masculine, was to be good at basketball, was to be good at sports, was to not be threateningly feminine because of just the conservatism. Femininity can be so intertwined with sexuality and sexualization. And therefore, you know, I was taught if men look at you, it's because you're doing something wrong. You're not covered enough. And I remember having, you know, panic attacks as a 17-year-old, a beautiful 17-year-old walking around and whenever men would notice me, it would just freak me out because it was, I'd been taught it was wrong. And so I had to learn to make peace with that side of myself, that part of myself that is very feminine, very femme, and to identify with, you know, those pronouns has been a real freedom for me because throughout my career, I've always been rewarded for doing, being a doer, being a fighter, which is very masculine energy. And it's only been in even the past couple of years that I've really settled into this softness of being nurturing and collaborative and basically the strongest side of myself because it is the strongest side of me at this point. And I'm open to, you know, there's more evolution ahead of me because I'm only in my 40s. I'm not dead yet by a long ways. And who knows where this will take me. But for the moment, that's why my pronouns are she, her. And it's a really beautiful backstory. So thank you for asking. Yeah, absolutely. I like reminding people that trans people do have an intricate journey with gender. And part of it is just sort of the fact that we've crossed these arbitrary lines. And I just also love to highlight that, you know, everyone who's cis probably has like just as convoluted a journey or not everyone, but a lot more people do. And I just want to highlight the similarity across the board. Yeah, definitely. And I think it was really useful to have that question asked because probably a lot of people listening Maybe they haven't even thought about their gender. You just have gotten to roll along without having to be conscious that you were assigned male at birth, so you identify as male and that works for you, or you were assigned female at birth and that works for you. But it's maybe there is more of a complex journey than people recognize. So I think it's worth sitting with that and thinking, what is my relationship to my pronouns? Am I comfortable with them? Do I feel that somewhere in my body? Does it feel comfortable or uncomfortable? You're the educator here, so we'll get to this. But I think it's also really useful to define for people how you created a space of comfort and identity for yourself by identifying as non-binary. But could you explain what that means to people who might not be familiar with the term? Of course. So non-binary is a term that popped up in online spaces in the like late 2000s, early 2010s. It, it's very simple. It just means that your relationship to gender is not exclusively binary in some way. So there are a lot of people who are non-binary who do have a relationship to masculinity or femininity or womanhood and manhood. And like they have one foot or toe in there, but they also have like a foot elsewhere. For some people, it feels like a lack of gender. For some people, it feels like they've got a million genders. For some people, it feels like they've got one gender. It's just not man or woman. Some people feel it's this in-between space. Some people use it to highlight their fluidity. It's an umbrella term and in and of itself, it's a identity label itself. It's sort of like queer. Queer is both an umbrella term and also a specific identity. And so similarly, and then I also like to highlight that it does have lineage underneath the trans umbrella because, you know, uh, the last century transsexual was like the medical term. And then in the early 90s, in response to this over-medicalization, transgender instead of transsexual emerged. And mm -hmm. it essentially meant the same thing non-binary means today. Um, it's this sort of anyone who's breaking gender norms. Uh, 
And I remember there was this one interview by two of my favorite trans activists and speakers, Kate Bornstein and Leslie Feinberg. You can just like type in the names of those two people together on YouTube. You'll find it. It's two hours of them just chatting. It's incredible from 1996. And they are like, you know, it's anyone who breaks the gender code. So that's, you know, obviously transsexuals, drag queens, butch women, femboys. Even if you're just a feminist who's refusing to be a woman cooking in your your husband's kitchen, that's in some ways transgender. And I would just remember like mind alone. But then the people who are, you know, the loudest, most acceptable, the medically binary transitioning people took on the word transgender by the late 90s and kind of ousted the original meeting. It, that's sort of why when you ask people what's transgender mean, they start like people who are having the surgeries to become male or female, like because there was a time where that definition was changed by a more powerful group of people, relatively more powerful, not actually more powerful in the longer in the <laughs> wider world. So then gender queer kind of came in. Gender queer didn't really fully take off. It's sort of still around, mm. but non-binary kind of came in as the umbrella term to talk about things beyond just gender queer. And so once again, it has this really specific lineage to the umbrella term of trans as well. So and I think a lot of non-binary people struggle with that because the word they've learned for transgender isn't the open-ended one. It is that medical and they're like, I'm not doing that. I'm not yeah. medically transitioning. Therefore, I can't be trans. And I'm just, you know, it's more complicated than that. Anyways, mm -hmm. that's what non-binary means. Oof. Yeah, because this stuff is complex and it is as diverse as people are because I have friends who are gender fluid. I have friends who say that they are gender non-conforming and they're definitely not the other term. So the best way to find out how people identify that is just ask. And if they use a certain term, you know, it's okay to ask what that definition means for them, isn't it? Because that's still a way of making sure that they understand you really want to see and understand them. So if you don't understand, don't be freaked out that you're suddenly going to get wrapped on the knuckles by the non-binary police or something. Just ask. Make that person feel seen and heard. And I think that's one of the most important things. You might have never come across some of these terms before. You might have never come across the identity that somebody's presenting to you. So rather than just be like, oh, that's weird, that's uncomfortable, I'm going to retreat or I'm going to be triggered or I'm just going to ignore it, ask, engage. It's, it's the way forward, I promise, because it connects us as humans. Yeah. And also, I do want to highlight that it's important to ask, but it's also to ask and make the other person comfortable. So, you know, if you don't know them very well, you've just met them and you're like, oh, you're non-binary. What does that mean? <laughs> you know, it also remember that it's something that happens that people will talk about and you can ask them as the relationship forms. It might not be the best first question to ask someone. You mm -hmm. might, someone that might even say, oh yeah, I'm non-binary. And then you can go, oh, interesting. <clears throat> go Google it first. Like learn a little bit on your own. Um, and then you can ask their personal <laughs> relationship once you get to know them a little bit better. I do want to, I yes, ask. Sorry. But, you know. Yeah. my one note no that's a great note because it's exactly the same as when you have friends who are people of color or a color different from you don't just make them the totemic speaks for everyone in the community and also it's very personal and as we talked about at the beginning this is probably a good moment to get into the itchiness of gender because it's a really tough thing for a lot of people to grapple with get their heads around when they're realizing they want to explore their gender. So can we talk about this? Why would you say the gender conversation is itchy and then why is it needlessly uncomfortable? Sure. So I think itchy is a phenomenal term because I think it 
describes the feeling of it. It's something that is very much a nuisance. I think for everyone, sometimes it can be really painful and sometimes it can be ever present. It can be like something that you can't stop thinking about. And sometimes it's just sort of like a little something there that you're like, you're not even sure if you're feeling it or not. Right. Mm -hmm. So I I like itchy because I think it describes the particular sort of and also it sort of gets the whole like in your skin feeling right. Like your skin is what's itchy and it sort of can kind of relate to the embodiment factor of gender and the fact that it is interrelated to sex, but is is sort of also about like the misconceptions around sex and the fact that sex is really misunderstood, like assigned sex, biological sex, not like sexuality sex, but you know, obviously all that wraps into another. And then, I don't know. So I think it highlights the embodiment of it. It highlights that sort of, I'm like, you can't see me, but I'm like sort of wriggling around that kind of feeling of like, you know, that kind of stuff. That's like itchy. And I say it's needlessly uncomfortable because I think, a lot of this itch comes from people like either not being allowed to scratch the itch or not knowing what it is even and being just confused and uncomfortable because they don't even know why they're feeling this way or how to deal with it. And so I think having the tools to recognize it, it doesn't necessarily mean that the itch itch goes away. Con- like it's not going to go away for a while. Just gender is still very ever present and looming in society in a lot of ways. And also is very like fun and personal for a lot of people. So it's not always itchy. I think there's a lot of people who it's uh, really fun and joyful. So that's why they say it's like needlessly uncomfortable because you know, there's ways out of it if you want it. Interesting, because one of the questions I had posed ahead of time and it was based on a chat we had already, which is you were saying that the sort of the capacity for discomfort is quite low when talking about gender that you see in your classrooms and sort of a clash between the rhetoric and the reality that you see. And obviously, this is a podcast about discomfort. So I'm curious, why is that capacity so low? Is it because it feels dangerous or what? Honestly, I think it just feels so personal. And people don't think of it as we're talking about, okay, we're, we're talking about you, yes, but we're talking about society more broadly. Like, I think that's why it's so low because it is this thing that people think that you're making them have to reconfigure their own understanding of themselves. And they've like centralized it as a part of their identity. And truly, this is who I am because, you know, you've had to be that. Society does not let you not be that. And so I think people just have a really low capacity because it, just feels so personal and also something that they've just never had to think about so often. So it's like, you know, asking about their personality, this thing that they might think of as not mutable and just a core part of who they are. It's baked into their DNA, which is a a very silly idea. But, you know, I think that's why it's so uncomfortable. And, you know, as an educator, I I actually really want to start with there because I think, you know, people are reliant on their own experience and their own lenses to to see the world and i'm like okay rather than fight that let's start there so basically whenever i'm teaching workshops i make everyone use their own life experiences to start highlighting how gender is something that they've been taught how to do it's something that they've been kind of forced to do sometimes in ways that's sometimes uncomfortable for them and to start highlighting how it's bigger than them and so i start with i'm like okay it's uncomfortable because you think I'm attacking you or making you have to like reevaluate your whole sense of self. And I'm like, okay, well then let's not beat around the bush. Let's start there. So that's sort of my methodology when it comes to that. 
So then how do you find your pace as an educator in that? How do you create a safe space and kind of help move people along when they might get stuck? Because this isn't, well, it's potentially something that's easier to just not dive into. You could live your life kind of half closeted as a non-binary person and get by pretty, pretty fine by fitting into the queer community or whatever in other ways. So how do you help support people at the pace they need to go? Yeah. So for instance, in the workshop, I've got this one workshop, Seeing the Spectrum, that that I teach a lot. So if anyone ever wants that for your DEI initiatives, it's totally available. It's like this project I've been curating over the last couple of years, and it just has like a lot of parts and pieces where you know, we can talk about vocabulary. We can talk about how you use they, them pronouns. We can talk about the history. Like there's a lot of things we can like plug in and out. But the one part I'm like, we can't do it without this is I take like a full 15 minutes to make people share gender, share what their gender experiences or like what they've seen and observed. And I'm like, this is where we start. And we have to take this time. Otherwise, people will just feel like I'm yammering at them and it has nothing to do with them. So I first make it very obvious this is something that it's not just a training on how to like be nice to trans people. This is about something bigger and it affects you. What a beautiful approach. So much of my work these days is actually starting to be on DE and I because it's, I mean, local councils, corporates, and everybody's just sort of realizing they don't have a clue about how to do this well. And it's not just about color diversity. It's not just about having more females in leadership. They're realizing, oh my gosh, there are a lot of things I need to learn. So. I'll fire on that. I might bring you in for some stuff because that could be useful. But I love how you make it personal. You insist on it being personal because it is. And if people aren't realizing it's personal, they really haven't thought about their gender, have they? So it sounds like it's a way of producing productive discomfort from the sound of it. Like you're putting people, you're like, nope, nope, you're going to look in the mirror before we get started. What do you see there? Well, and also I think I have a particular skill that I've developed in that like the way I'm able to present it, the way I use inflections in my voice. I'm like, oh, let's talk about it. Oh, share in the comments here. Actually, I don't know. They let their guard down very fast. And they're like, oh, yeah. When I was like, oh, the prom. Oh, yeah. Pink toys for girls. And they like they instantly kind of the floodgates actually open really fast, which is the fun part. And once again, yeah. that skill that I've developed, I think there's a lot of people who are forced into this role as an educator. And I've heard a lot of them who are like, I'm not a teacher, but I've been forced to do this talk. And they're like, yeah, people don't like it. They're like, feel like they're being dragged. And I'm like, yeah, because it's a skill to like get people to open up. And not everyone has learned that skill. And there's a lot of people who are forced into the position of being an educator. And that makes yeah. me sad for them. That does me too. Because yeah, we always have a fun time in my sessions. And that's often a comment I get in my work because I'm talking about climate change and racial injustice and things. And it can feel so heavy that I want people to, and this is the comment I often get in my work, and I applaud this in yours. People are like, that was unexpectedly fun. We got a lot done, but it was fun. And they're like, how was that fun? We were talking about climate change for three hours. So yeah, it's make it fun, make it a game, make it enjoyable, even when you're doing the deep, juicy work. It's like edutainment. I love that term, edutainment. Stealing that one. Might write it down. Might be your quote on social media after this. Love it. Because you were talking recently, I think it was even this week, a video you made about kind of the ridiculousness of people talking about, you know, the, the male brain and the female brain and how you're just like, we don't talk about male or male lungs and female lungs and, you know, the male stomach and the female. This is absolutely ridiculous. So there's this kind of pseudoscience 
thing that props up our understanding of the binary, which brings me to, I want to dive into the binary. Because you also wrote something about the sticky glue of masculine and feminine and sort of the poles of the binary, masculine or male and female, let's say. And we just kind of take it for granted unless we've thought about it that, oh yeah, there are these two poles, there's male and there's female, but it's actually incredibly relative. So, and also not necessarily useful. I guess it's useful to hear you talk about, you know, how relative those poles are. And also then what's the usefulness of getting away from gender setting you up here? Sure. So yeah, so I think one of the things, even as we've been talking, I've noticed uh, you tend to use male and female over and over. I'm not here to police. I'm just observant when it comes to language. It's my training as a linguist. I can't help but just notice patterns. Tell and me. So I've just noticed you're using male and female instead of man and woman in almost every single instance. And so I, I think it's really fascinating how, once again, the sticky glue of masculinity and femininity, I feel it is this force, the same term that is what glues together like womanhood and femaleness and manhood and maleness and makes them synonymous when in reality they aren't there's like there's an archetype of what it means to be a woman and it a lot of it has to do with socialization or the experiences of being a female but it also is exists beyond just that but it is seen as like completely synonymous because mm -hmm. I think of the concepts of masculinity and femininity. So for instance, you ask someone, okay, what does it mean to be feminine? Okay. A bunch of people are going to start listing off like, okay, it's because I've got a period. It's like the curves of my body. It's like my long hair. They start talking about embodiment. Okay, great. Mm -hmm. A whole other group of people are going to start talking about, well, it's like lipstick and flowy dresses and all these sorts of like really aesthetic things. You ask an entirely different group and someone's going to say like, well, it's like about being caring and kind and nurturing. And for some people, it's like, well, it's about the roles you play in society. It's like being a mom, you know, the fact that like, you know, nurses are women. And I I've noticed people say so many different things. And yes, it's about embodiment, but also it's about society and the roles available and our stereotypes. And I think masculinity and femininity are terms that glue together societal gender ideas cover up the fact that a lot of our notions and understandings of sex itself are societal ideas, not actual scientific, factual anything. And also it glues together just like our assigned sex based on our body's reproductive capacity, which once again, why is that our primary mod modality or one of the primary modalities of categorizing bodies? Why is reproduction the center of all of this? Why is this? So when I think about like, you know, why is it important to like get away from gender? I'm not sure if it's like fully getting away from gender. It's just starting to understand that in a lot of ways, gender as like an oppression based on sex, it's like, okay, why are we focusing on sex in the first place? Why is this assignment so important? And it's because of this like cisgender heteronormative reproductive focused society that we live in. It's like the only role of womanhood is in a lot of ways is to like be this bun in the oven sort of like yeah. object. And it makes me so mad that that's the case. And so, you know, in terms of like getting away from gender, I mean, in terms of like this classic male is synonymous with woman is synonymous with them. Sorry, male is synonymous with man is synonymous with I'm going to try that one more time. <laughs> I feel you. To get Me away too. from to yeah, 
So to get away from this sort of concept that like male is synonymous with masculine is synonymous with man and all of the things that go along with that. And the same thing for like female is like synonymous with feminine and synonymous with woman. And I just sort of it's getting away from that sort of classic traditional sex gender binary tied together by reproductive heteronormativity and, you know, moving toward a more free and inclusive and open-ended version of what gender could be. So it's running away from traditional gender and moving toward something exciting and free and less confining and itchy. Well, first of all, I have to thank you for actually saying that and noticing that about my language. But then I'm going to ask you for help. So I want to model that this is how I hope these conversations can go for people. I'm like, oh, wow, I wasn't conscious of that. But that also recognizing I'm thinking back to where that comes from. Why do I use masculine and feminine? And to me, I'm trying to step away from gendered and not calling it man and woman. And in sort of it comes from my experience with, you know, diving into the Jungian ar archetypes of masculine and feminine. But I'm always willing to try to do better. So it's like, don't skin off my nose. I stand corrected. I'm willing to learn a better way to talk about this stuff. But what is that way? You know, what do I say instead? And that's where I get stumped. So I would love your help, your insight. We can have this conversation now or come back to it at some point. No, let's, let's, let's do a little bit right now. So I think what I'm talking about here is this sort of male and female part, because the reality is sex is incredibly complicated. Yes, it's your external genitalia. It's your internal genitalia. It is your chromosomes, but also Sex is regulated throughout your entire DNA. It's not just the sex chromosomes. It's your secondary sex characteristics. It's your hormonal sex. There are a lot of different facets of it, and it's seen as one clear-cut, obvious thing. And it's seen as something that's immutable because some parts are immutable, but in reality, many of the parts are completely changeable given contemporary technology and not even contemporary technology. Like, and hormonal sex is very complicated and just being studied these days. So anyway, so I tend to like really think hard if and when I'm using the terms male and female at all. Like, am I specifically talking about this assignment process? Okay, assign male, assign female, right? Am I specifically talking about a body's like reproductive capacity? Probably. And even then I'm like, okay, can I be more specific? Am I going to talk about like a vulva and a uterus and like a penis and your testicles versus just being like, male genitals and female genitals? Because once again, sex is complicated. And for instance, a lot of trans people, even if they're not having like a gender confirmation surgery of one sort or another, we're literally changing our hormonal sex. And it has massive implications all over our bodies. And it's physically changing our sex, even if it's not surgical. Or there's a lot of people who are surgical. And then people are like, you know, your sex is the, the it's chromosomal sex. That's the only thing. It's like, no, sex is many parts. So for me, it's really considering why am I saying male? Why am I seeing female? Am I overusing it? And so that's why I do rely on like masculine or feminine sometimes to talk about sort of the codes of it all. Or I talk about man and woman to talk about identities because it is this like gender in my view is your relationship to the social codes of gender, right? So your identity is like, how do you even see yourself fitting in? And of course, I don't want to say that like sex has nothing to do with it. Absolutely. All these things are built upon these misconceptions of sex. Yeah, like that's really where we're coming from. And that's why I think a lot of people are so stuck in using them as synonyms because they see sex as like a one singular obvious thing that leads to one singular obvious gender role. And so instead of like trying to get away from gender roles, I think actually referencing the fact that 
our society gives two pretty consistent gender roles and also opening it up for more to be available and to make them more free, open and fluid and really a spectrum that where there aren't hard lines, Mm. you know, and just acknowledging the social parts of it, especially because so much of the concepts of sex are, are more social than tangible reality, like, or they're, and cultural. And then they get these sort of these myths get encoded into actual physical reality of our, you know, infrastructure of our world around us. And then it kind of reinforces it and builds it into actually like a material reality where we're all like so focused on what's in your pants or like all of our outward signals are supposed to point back to that, even if we're actually very sex adverse and we like can't talk, we can't say the word vulva for some reason. Our penis is like, oh my goodness. Um, I know. I don't understand why people can use genitalia as swear words so easily, but they can't talk about the actual terminology without being like, ew, we don't use that word. It's crazy. It's crazy. Well, on your website, I think, do you have an example of a client in Turkey who, rather than talking about transitioning there, they talk about finding gender harmony. So that to me just was a beautiful illustration of A, finding gender harmony and not having it to be, you know, binary, but also to the fact that it is very cultural. You know, like there are a lot of indigenous cultures around the world who have long celebrated two-spirit people where you don't have to choose one. You get to have both and it's celebrated. It means you are one of the wise ones. So I think we do kind of suffer from this. Sometimes we forget as a very dominant global culture, as Americans, and I'm American and British, two very dominant cultures. We forget that actually you know, we have a very narrow view and a very specific view of gender. And even talking about transitioning or different terminology, there are a lot of other really rich views and cultures to learn from about this. So if you're listening to this and thinking, this is an impossible conversation, it blows my mind, or I still don't know what pronouns to use, or should I use masculine and feminine? I'm going to still grapple with this. Keep trying, but also remember like, We live in a culture where we have conversations like this, but other people are maybe a bit further ahead about it. Maybe we can learn from them. But also in 10 years, we will have had a lot of these conversations. Because I remember, you know, starting to identify as queer was a big one for me as bisexual because I never felt queer enough to be gay and straight enough to fit into the straight world. But then I just felt like a person without a continent to land on. But that has really changed in the 14 or so years since I, I sort of started to embrace that term for myself, because now I feel completely at home in the queer community. And there are a lot more people who are in my position who present as very feminine, express themselves as very female. Ah, I caught myself there. But also, you know, I'm comfortable saying I'm queer. People don't look at me as some sort of a traitor, like I'm not gay enough or something. So yeah, that was just me rambling on about my own little journey about it. But I I guess where this kind of takes us is how can this discussion that we're we're having about gender that a lot of people are exploring, I think hopefully increasingly, how can that guide us into more collectivism, being more compassionate about each other, working more together rather than making it about ourselves as individuals because we come from a very individualistic culture and I think we've seen a lot of harm that that can do by just not caring about the collective not thinking about the collective and kind of making it all about like my identity my experience in the world how can this help us to be more collective as people navigate their gender identity absolutely so here's the thing that I always still struggle with is 
not falling into binaries when it's one of the major mechanisms of like Western society and these dualities, you know, you learn, okay, what's temperature hot and cold. So everything ends up being in these things. And even as someone who's like one of my skills, I think is seeing past binaries, it's still the first place I go. And so I think one Mm -hmm. thing I want to highlight, even in your question, I love this question is I don't think that there is a clear cut line between individual and collective. I think that this is like a false binary. I think in a lot of ways, how could you even start helping make the world a better gender place until you do grapple with your own sense of self? Amen. Like, it's very that, like, you know, the airplane thing. Put put your oxygen mask on first before you help someone else, right? Like, and I think that's sort of one of those things where being able to understand your own relationship to all of this will help you better and have compassion for other people to really grapple with the fact that you likely have a far more complicated relationship than what you've been allowed to even explore in yourself. Mm -hmm. And then that lets you have empathy for other people who are also having a different complicated relationship to gender. So I think that's sort of one of the things where I'm like, I, I try really hard to see past binaries. That's what I wrote my master's thesis on is how in our perceptions of the world, it's even as someone who like, that's a focus of mine. That's something I'm trying to hone and develop. It's so hard. It's so difficult. It sometimes feels impossible. But I think creating collective empathy comes from actually knowing yourself and not just assuming you are whatever you've been told you are. That's a beautiful point. And also, I really appreciate how you unpack that because like, I have written on a sticky note directly here on my desk that my approach is about individual, then group than systemic. And I completely agree. But what I think my point was, and it turned out to be a good provocative question, actually, was that a lot of, I mean, in certain cultures like the US, in like the UK, like a lot of Western societies, we get stuck in the individual. We never move outside of that. I think that's where that, no, that's definitely where that question came from in my head, because I'm currently experiencing a really deep level of frustration with, you know, sort of People in yoga studios who I hang out with, people in supposedly sustainable well-being circles I hang out with. And there's just, there isn't a moving on to consideration of the collective. So I think that that's an important differentiation to make. We do need to work on ourselves first because we can't do anything else for anybody if we haven't done our own work. Totally agree. It's like RuPaul says, if you can't love yourself, how the hell are you going to love somebody else? But also, I really do want to make that point of like, it can just end up being very self-indulgent if you do your work and do your work and do your work and then never look outside yourself. So I guess a point I'm probably going to end up making in a lot of podcast interviews this season. But yeah, thank you for that insight because part of it is also that realization that we're all connected. So if people aren't able to connect to themselves and who they truly feel they are because they've never been allowed to ask that question or consider their gender, it's going to harm them and it's going to harm all of us. So Back to, yeah, you have to do your own work first before you can do any good for the collective. So, yeah. Well, and I, I, I think I really love what you're saying. I want to jump off of it. And I think to really get to why we're st- these cultures are stuck, it's because the individual self is seen as just what you are and you can't change it. You have no control over yourself. You just are something. And I think that's where people get stuck. It's not even looking inward. It's just a declaration without having an examination. And I think that's where people get stuck is it's because it is absolutely just this 
I am. And like, they're never questioning, well, how did you learn that? Where did you develop that belief? Well, if you were to actually engage with that, do you still believe that? Like, that's where I think it, people are getting stuck is it's just a declaration versus an exploration. Mm, that's a really good point. Because if you've traveled much, you've probably gone to countries where you realize cisgendered straight men hold hands uh, and that in no way has any implication for their masculinity. So it's just sort of like these embedded beliefs we have that we think are gospel because of our society, our cultural context. It's a really good point. Just question everything you assume as the truth, the way it is about your identity, because they're all so relative. You give some good examples in your videos, in your writing, in a lot of your work, but what are a couple examples of sort of things that people assume about gender that you're just like, that's completely relative? Just to give some examples. I, I think one of the ones I think people need to understand is uh, their own hormones are the the classic like masculine hormone of testosterone and estrogen is another one is the reality is all humans make both estrogen and testosterone at different levels plus also progesterone and dht which there are more sex hormones mm -hmm. and we all make them at various levels and there are of course patterns that differentiate like male patterns and female patterns but also the reality is these are very wide ranges. They are not tight. They are not super straightforward. And that hormonally, way more people than most people understand, because who gets their hormones tested, <laughs> fall completely outside of the range. Like a lot more people's hormonal sex is not clear cut male or female, or even what the range is of what's male and female are really wide, often overlapping. And so I think that's one thing people, not that I'm like, go get your hormones tested, go see your doctor today. Like, I just think, <laughs> what if you didn't assume that you are the way you are because of how much testosterone you've got in your body, right? Like, do you know that? Are you aggressive because you've got so much testosterone coursing through your veins? Like, do you know that for sure? A lot of people, things that you would ex see as expressed through like, okay, they're very hairy and muscular, therefore they've got to have so much testosterone. Well, okay, some people might, but there's plenty of people who are also those, have those particular characteristics and have very low levels of testosterone. It's just because how their body takes whatever they were given and transforms it into their like sexed body. So that's one example. I think once again, the fact that a lot of gender is a misconceptions and misunderstandings of sex itself. Oh God, so we don't even have time. We need to go back to that one. You need to come on again. And we will go into that one because I think that's a whole hour's chat. We've only got a few minutes left. And I still wanted to ask you about your aim. Your aim in the world is beautiful. It's to make the world safer for trans and non-binary people and particularly young people. Because I know you know an awful lot about neurological development stages of children and the gift that it is to help them to understand their gender, <laughs> their real gender, their gender in a really individual way early before they pick up social conditioning. So talk a bit about that, your mission and why. Right. Yeah. So I think generally my mission is just I want to spark creativity. I want to spark curiosity and I want people to have freedom of self-expression and freedom of self-definition. And so, yeah, I think in a lot of ways, Sort of the one little cynical corner of my mind is like, I've low-key given up on the idea of getting 
people older to completely reconfigure their understanding of self and instead focus for them on just helping them be empathetic and seeing other people who are doing it differently, right? And of course, there are plenty of people who late in life like reconfigure how they understand themselves and that's iconic and awesome. I just think it's more difficult once you're, you know, you're socially your sense of self, but also in a sort of a developmental way. It's more difficult to sort of undo and re-scrape up what your habits are and reconfigure them, right? Hmm. But, and I think in a lot of ways, I, I do tend to focus on Part of this is making the world a safer place, a more exciting and exploratory place for young people, because it's important to remember, first of all, brains are plastic. There are certain mechanisms that all people develop based on their brain, but also a lot of it, your brain literally biologically, physically like encodes what we're being taught. And I think it's really important that we're mindful of this and that we are not just refeeding what you've been taught and just like getting people to like get stuck in their own mind and their own, you know, just creating new pathways for people, both like, you know, socially, but also just like in people's literal brains. Like Mm. we don't have to encode people the same way we've always encoded. You don't have to make a mini clone of yourself. And so I I, I just think kids have so much they're squishy and they're not solid yet and they can be anything. And so why limit them? What's the point of that? What does that do for them? I don't think it's doing anything for them. I think it just makes me sad. Like I'm like, they could become literally anything. Yeah. Why are they just men or women or boys and girls? Like, yeah. And why does it have to be weird when you let your son wear Disney princess dresses? There's a guy I follow on Instagram who does and other people who are trying to parent in a non-binary way. Just take a moment if you're listening to this and think about what would the world be like if all children were raised in a non-binary way, if they weren't given these social cues about what male is, what female is, what they're supposed to be into because they've been assigned some sort of pronouns and sex. Like, wow, that would just be such a different world. I can't even imagine it. I would like to. I'm probably going to sit with that. But that kind of leads me on to one of my final questions, which is what excites you about the future in your work? Ooh, let's see. I don't know. I, I just think I am excited to to see the fact that I am actively able to reach people and impact people and help people understand how they see the world. I think that's just so exciting that I've seen directly my impact on helping people become curious. And I'm excited to continue doing that. I'm also excited for the fact that a lot of people just are like non-binary. I I teach an art class for teens for like, it's an LGBTQ space plus allies, but it is really an art class, right? Uh, A place to develop creative skills. But out of the seven kids were there, six of them use they, them pronouns. And Also, these kids, they flip between pronouns every week. I ask, okay, what do we want to use tonight? And they give me different ones each time. And I'm like, (laughs) oh, that's what the kids are up to. And of course, I'm like in Somerville, Massachusetts, which is a very trans friendly space. And of course, it's like not necessarily the paradigm for the entire world. But where I am, I'm like, wow. And also, this one's again a self-selecting class that's like specifically about queerness. And I'm a non-binary person. Maybe they're drawn like. Yeah. But anecdotally, I'm like, goodness gracious, that's incredible. Yeah, the kids are experimenting. They're actively exploring gender in a way that nobody has really taught them. There's just been some space opened up and there are more examples out there, I suppose. 
That's exciting. That excites me as well. I love that. Well, do you have any questions for me? Yeah, I um, one of my favorite questions to ask cis people. Just once again, and the, the, y'all at home, <laughs> I want to. Ha- you, I never get called a cis person. Most cis people never get called cis people because it everybody assumes it's the default. So it's just like being a white person in America. It's just like everybody else defends yeah. himself against you. But yeah, go, go, get wasted. So, and it's once again, this is a question for for both you, Betsy, but also listeners at home. I want you to consider this as well. <laughs> um, here we so, go like why are you still there why given the fact that you could become literally anything gender wise why are you still a man or a woman i love that question i'm gonna have to think about it it'll come out i'm sure as i talk but i'm loving being a woman i'm loving how i present to the world i'm loving my curves and my lipstick and my feminist and I'm loving the friction of polarity with my male partner. I'm enjoying playing this role in the world. And I don't know if this is where I will park forever, but it feels very authentic to me. Like I've allowed myself to come home to something that's very authentic for me as I've woven my way through having, you know, most of my life, people have assumed I was a lesbian because I've always had short hair. I've always played sports. I've always, you know, society sees a short haircut and just assumes things and and that you're good at certain things and you know just the classic lesbian who builds cabins and wears lumberjack shirts stereotype so i'm just really enjoying unfolding into this identity for now maybe for the rest of my life but yeah i'm comfortable here right now how's that that's beautiful yeah there's a post that i had this year that sort of went a little viral then it was just this graphic that said if you're going to be cis do it on purpose because (laughs) i i want people to have the the amazing experience of doing your gender with intention because Mm -hmm. you like it, not because it's something that you had to be. And so once again, there's nothing wrong with feeling like, okay, this role that I was given, okay, I'm taking up the mantle and I'm into it. Like, that's fine. But I want you to do it because you like it, not because you feel like you have to. That makes me so sad if you're only doing it because you have to. And remembering that, you know, if you are end up being like, oh, I don't like this. What do I like? It doesn't necessarily mean that you have to change the category label, or it might mean that you do. And whatever you end up deciding to do, it is amazing. As long as you're doing it because it's like brings you joy and is not about just constriction. And I also specifically, if there are any cisgender men out there, you need to think long and hard about this. Women have been thinking about this forever. Yeah, boys. (laughs) think about this if you are out there you need to think about this which brings us also beautifully to where (laughs) can we find you matisse because you do some great workshops but before we do like i'll ask you where we can find you but i also want to encourage people to a check out the places that they can find you because i love you on social media but you've got a great website and You can make a donation to help Matisse give some free gender consults to people on the wait list who can't otherwise afford it. And this is people who probably often young people, people who aren't economically able to afford it, but they really want and need to navigate through this gender identity 
well, it's obviously something that's fundamental and it's difficult and they need somebody to help them. So mm -hmm. if you feel compelled, I will put that in the show notes. You can donate and help somebody to get a gender consult. But where can we find you, Matisse? Yeah, absolutely. So you can visit my website, MatisseDupont.com. And that's where you can also find those gender consult services, which are um, a place for you to come in and ask all your your sticky questions about gender, you know, talk through your own identity. Uh, if you're cis and you want to just think through how to be an ally, come ask all of your uninformed questions. <laughs> it's really open ended. And I love creating a space that's like not clinical. It's not therapy at all. It's just what are your questions? Let me give you some advice. It's kind of like coaching or tutoring, right? And so, yeah, that's where you can find that service. And once again, yeah, I do have a wait list for people who need free sessions. And if you want to help support that initiative, I would love that so much because it helps me both be paid for my time and also gets this time to people. I'm glad I've got set up this on social media. You can find me at Mix Matisse DuPont and on all platforms, Instagram and TikTok are where I'm active. I technically have a Twitter, but I avoid Twitter like the plague if I'm completely Same. honest. Oh, it's like um, a dark web. It's a dark place. Yeah, <laughs> it is. My partner loves it. I'm just like, get me away from Twitter. But yeah, so that's where you can find me. I thought I had one more thing to say, but I've either which way. Also, I have a newsletter. You can find that on my website as well. That comes out every Thursday morning, 11 a.m. Eastern time or most Thursday morning sometimes. <laughs> Along with the rest of us. Yes, not every week. And... Yeah. And for as far as if you ever need to get in touch with me directly, you can email me at hello at MatisseDupont.com. And I offer all sorts of services. So if your company needs a workshop on understanding gender, be inclusive mm. for trans and non-binary people, I've got Seeing the Spectrum. If you need just consulting on a project, I've worked with a ton of different institutions just to give them advice on how to do the work that they're doing. Specifically, a lot of museums have brought me in, which I love because museums are like, uh, I'm not particularly religious. They're like a holy place to me, though, somehow. But yeah, so I'm around. I'm available. And hit me up. And I promise you want to follow Matisse on TikTok and Instagram. Your videos are beautiful, interesting, funny, educational. I learn so much and I always look forward. I'm like, oh, there's a new video from Matisse because you're quite prolific. And I so appreciate that. So you're one of the good things about social media, I have to say. So to everybody listening, check those out. So as usual, I will put all of the show notes for where you can find Matisse. And also, if you are interested in getting a gender consult, book one with them. If you can't afford one, get on the wait list. To all of our lovely cis male listeners, we love you. But please think about your gender. It's going to be an interesting thing. Get in touch. DM me, email me, email Matisse. But all that's left to say is thank you so much, Matisse, for your time, your wisdom, your scholarship. I absolutely love you. I'm definitely having you back if you'll come back. So thank you. Oh, absolutely. This was such a fun conversation. And thank you for having me on, Betsy. I really love sharing space with you. So thanks for having me. Thanks for getting uncomfortable with me. If you enjoyed this episode, follow and like The Discomfort Practice wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave me a five-star and written review and share this with other people. Help me to reach new audiences with this idea that consciously practicing discomfort helps us to individually and collectively discover our superpowers and create a society and a planet where everyone can thrive. 
Thank you so much to my guests all season. Go back and listen to a few more episodes to hear more of them. They are wonderful humans doing amazing things in the world. Thanks to my team who helped me produce this podcast. And for those who inspire me through their writing, their conversation, and their support. So that's all from me for now. Follow me on Instagram at the Betsy Reed if you want to get to know me a bit better, some of my thoughts. And in the meantime, stay uncomfortable.